can make a connection with. Listening to Living Writers. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Daniel Handler. <laughs> That's you. That is. That is I. <laughs> uh, welcome, Daniel. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for being here. Well, it is a pleasure to be in such luxurious surroundings <laughs> as the studio here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> Nicely said. Have Thank you, you very much. Have you ever said that before? I have said that before, uh, <laughs> and I, I used to work in radio, though not in front of the microphone. Um, How, what did you do then? Well, uh, my one of my first, uh, actually, my first paid writing gig um, was writing uh, radio scripts for a show, for several shows in San Francisco, for a producer uh, there. He had his production company, and I would write scripts, most famously for the House of Blues Radio Hour, oh, hosted by Dan Aykroyd in the persona of Elwood Blues. Um, so I would write scripts for that show. And what what year was that, Daniel? Like, give us a little time. Because you said it's your first writing gig where you got paid. Right. Right, not to qualify it. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, let's see. I think I started doing that in 1994, maybe 94 through 96, something was, like that. So that was so that was post-Wesleyan? Yeah, it was... Um, it, 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 yeah, it was, it was post-Wesleyan uh, and... Um, and and then I had a like a crummy job answering phones for a while, and then I had and then I had this job, which was, uh, for the time and considering that it wasn't very much work, was extraordinarily paid. And that was that after your job from um, let's see, where it was like the City College of San Francisco with right, the, that was the with first the job answering phones at the uh, <laughs> computer science department at the City College of San Francisco. That's what trips off my mouth so easily, actually. Computer science department at the City College of San Francisco, because I said that I said that so many times when I was at that job. I right. Still say that phrase. And maybe answering the phone at home at, during that time. Oh, all the time. <laughs> I would answer the phone That's... and say, uh, computer science department at the City College of San Francisco. And my wife would say, no, it isn't, honey. <laughs> Come back That's to me. That's your home. Come back to me. Um, well, let's see. Daniel Handler is yes. the author of the novels The Basic Eight and Watch Your Mouth. And as Lemony Snicket, a sequence of children's novels collectively entitled A Series of Unfortunate Events. Um, That's true. And that book, Adverbs. I'm the <laughs> author I, of that one. That's right. That's which is quite important. <laughs> the one important. that you were reading the bio from <laughs> is also the one I've written. It seems it seems like that should be self evident. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. But not to people listening and streaming. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> without the visual cues. That was one of the running jokes in my radio scripts for the House of Blues Radio Hour was um, and now a special message for our viewers. Why are you viewing a radio? <laughs> that was our running gag. <laughs> Just to call people viewers and then to give them a hard time. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. What do you so, see hello, now, Bob? Hello, viewers of WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Keep your eyes on the road. Don't view the radio. Listen to the radio. And maybe your computer, right? Some do your yeah. I don't. Oh yeah. Because a lot of people right. I forgot the kids today listen to the radio on the computer. The kids today. Well, um, so let's let's uh, fill out a little bit more of your your biography. Your biography, Daniel. Certainly. Um, so so you uh, you were born in San Francisco, and and I hear you went actually to Lowell High School. It is some, true. Yeah, Gus Rose went there. Somebody. Who, oh yeah. Yeah, a lecturer and writer here at the school, and so they said, hey. Hey. Yes. Uh, Carol Channing went to Lowell High School. Not at the same time, though. No, but I <laughs> uh, I I played tuba in the uh, Lowell High School band um, oh, to dedicate the Carol Channing Theater. Um. Uh. Went so she came to Lowell High School. So we were at Lowell High School at the same time that day, but we did not attend Lowell High School at the same time. But she came to dedicate the Carol Channing Theater. And and you have uh and you played the tuba for that. Is that and something Is that the last live tuba performance that you except for other band concerts at Lowell High School? Yes. But once I graduated from Lowell High School, that was the end of my tuba days. I haven't picked up a tuba since graduation day in 1988. Is is that Hey, 1988. Hey. Was that? <laughs> um, why? So, what does it take to play the tuba? Because you know, <laughs> well, a lot of an inability to be embarrassed by having a having a tuba in front of you. It's a, it's a very very instrument to play, at least to play as well as you have to play it in a high school band. Because um, it's more of a series of. Like boom, boom. Yes, yeah. it was. Well, we were mostly uh, we weren't. We didn't actually march, but we sat in the bleachers and played during football games. And those bass lines are um, they're pretty simple uh, for those marching songs. Um, Is that what was was that uh, like? How did you leap from the tuba to the accordion? Because the accordion seems to be a pretty big part of your life. Um, it has become one, yes. I took piano lessons throughout my childhood. Um, and then the tuba was just something to do in band. I don't know. But uh, come to think of it, I have no idea why I played the tuba. And I played it for seven years. I, pl- I started it in middle school and then I played it in high school. Um, but then when I reached uh, college, as other people who graduated uh, high school in 1988 might be able to attest, there was this uh, brief moment in American pop music where no keyboard instruments were cool whatsoever. And I wanted to be in bands. And nowadays that seems kind of unthinkable that you couldn't play the keyboard and be in a band. Of course you can. And of course you could right before that, the 80s. Yes, the 80s. But then somehow the late 80s and the early 90s, it just wasn't cool at all. And so I took up the accordion. Which was always cool. Which was cool then in a... um, in a kind of folky REM adjunct kind of way. So the first band I was in in college, we tried to sound like the Cowboy Junkies. That was our um, oh nice modus operandi, which also seems equally unthinkable now. But, <laughs> but they have some beautiful songs. <laughs> it's true, and they just um, released a, a re-recording of the album that put them on the map. I, I just was uh, walking by a, a, a record store and in the window was a big thing that said the Trinity Sessions revisited and it occurred to me that it must be 20 years. Oh, good Lord. Which is kind of depressing uh, oh. for those of us who remember that album as being kind of an underground hit and not a VH1 
you know, kind of Starbucks wallpaper that it is today. But anyway, at the time, that's why I took up the accordion. It's only going to get worse, isn't it, with things like that, with, For the cowboy oh. hoodies? I don't know. <laughs> they're Canadian, I believe, so it's, they're, they're probably immune. okay. <laughs> They're, they're always they have health insurance. Happier. They, they ha- you have to play a certain amount of Canadian music on Canadian radio. Oh, that, um, yeah. that's the law. So they'll, I think they'll be okay for a long time. Margot Timmons, that was the name oh, of the yes, singer. Right. Yeah. These she had that breathy, sweet Jane. She had that going on. That seemed very sexy at the time. And still does. I have had I only know. <laughs> well, o- Especially when only you do the it, listeners Daniel. of the radio can confirm that or not. Exactly. <laughs> I'm married, ladies. Sorry. <laughs> well, so there's more of your biography. So you went to Wesleyan. That's, and that's right. Is that that's where you met Lisa Brown? It is, is where it? I met Lisa Brown. Uh, I suffered from a seizure disorder uh, in college, and um, I was in Chaucer class, and I had a seizure and passed out in the lap of uh, a woman. Uh, named Lisa Brown. So when I woke up from my seizure, we had to get to know one another. We sort of knew one another beforehand, but we definitely got to know each other better. And um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We were married. I mean, we were married many years later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, not, not like but I, I wasn't really sure how, how to give the complete history of my relationship. It went the way relationships go. You know, we grew closer. We made out. You know how it works. Right. Well, thank you, though. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Providing some titillating moments in the swing space. Um all right. Well, and so so then we Wesleyan then moved back to San Francisco upon graduation, and uh, and then and with bummed around there for a while, and then moved to New York, and right. bummed around there, and then moved back to San Francisco where I live to this day. And with the uh, with the with the writing, Daniel, when was uh, you said yesterday? Uh, this I should say I should have mentioned this at the top of the uh, our time. Uh, this is pre-taped, uh, and and Daniel Handler uh, was in town to give the Sarah Lamstein Children's Literature Lecture, and uh, well done. <laughs> oh, thank you. That, great, well, that, I, I was going to say well done. You were able to put that all into a sentence. Uh, it was great fun. It was a nice talk. It, it, it was seems particularly it was. ridiculous to talk about it when not only has it happened now, but it will have happened <laughs> even longer ago by the time this show is aired. It's like this is <laughs> remember way back then. That's right. <laughs> this is a time capsule of you, but in a time warp. So <laughs> it's all sorts of crazy. Um, but but then at, at that point, uh, Daniel, you had you had mentioned uh, that uh, you were were writing and and had uh, you you used your job at the City College of San Francisco go to get reams of paper, which was great, like um, a government grant of paper, you That's felt like. That's <laughs> definitely how I justified stealing paper from work, was that I was working at the City College of San Francisco, which is a public institution, and so it had city and state and federal mon- money, and I think, I always think there ought to be more city, state, and federal money. For local um, writers. For, uh, local for, writers. for the arts, so I said, well, this is a way to do it. Yes. I'll steal paper. <laughs> One remit at I'm time. not sure that follows, really, but <laughs> it's still the advice I give many a writer when they say, what's the advice you give to a writer? I say, work someplace where you can steal paper. And and so that, you were definitely uh, identified as a writer then. Like, you're, you're like, I'm a writer. I identified myself yes. as a writer. I was not identified by anyone else as a writer, but I wanted to be a writer, yes. And, and as a child, you said that you don't understand when people say, oh, kids don't read because you were always reading. You're a voracious reader. I cannot... 
Yes. I, I, it, oftentimes what happens when you write for children is that people want to know your opinion on how to make children read more. And I always think I'm, I, I have no idea because I was, no, I was nothing but an obsessive reader um, in, uh, in, in childhood. And so I, I, I have nothing to add to that. To me, books are, are their own reason to read. So I don't, um, yeah, the, I, I'm never able to help that. As sympathetic as I am to the problem. So so when did you, so so you've always read, uh, loved books, but when did you, was that so the natural, did did you just start writing when you were a young age as oh, well? I always like wanted creating? to be a writer. I can't remember a time that when I didn't want to be a writer. Um, there, my parents tell this uh, story about me that when I was five, um, someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said that I wanted to be one of those wise men who lived on top of a mountain, and other people would climb the mountain and ask him for advice, which um, <laughs> I don't remember thinking that, but if that story is true, then that was the only other employment plan I ever had. But I feel like you've realized that now with Ben Gibbard. <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> we can't talk about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> There's a juicy story that must not be discussed on the radio involving uh, mysticism and Ben Gibbard. If Sorry, only, everyone. If only we had mimosas That's to right. go with that mysticism. <laughs> so that was your other career option. So maybe, you know, uh, your parents were actually relieved. They thought, oh, how practical. He wants to be a writer when that came up. <laughs> <laughs> well, but... It, it, but really soon afterwards, I must have wanted to be a writer. I mean, I wanted to be a writer uh, when I was in ele elementary school. D did you write a book so. in elementary school? Were you sort of... I did. I wrote a book uh, called uh, Plankton! Exclamation point about a piece of plankton <laughs> that grew large and began attacking the city. Um... Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, well, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I would like I don't know to. why I, I agreed so readily that that's wonderful. I don't, I, that book must be somewhere in my childhood house, but I haven't seen it since um, its initial um, I, printing of one copy. Do you, do you, do you remember like what gave you the idea? Like, had you just seen, cause it sounds like those, some of those horror films where it's like, no matter what it is, like, and it's, you know, like. Uh, bats and then like like so this horror story of like you know my first story for example was mm -hmm. something that was like a total rip off of you know the Bambi story oh, <laughs> and right. so you wonder like and you don't know it when you're starting to write it oh there's a fire oh there's a baby well, my very bear first cub and story the fire. was about an egg um, who uh, ate radios <laughs> like a, uh, so a, a voracious kind of anthropomorphized uh, egg. That was my first story. But the first book was Plankton! Exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> and, and now we can, we after knowing that information, we can sort of trace your your growth as a as a writer <laughs> <laughs> too many exclamation points yes no. um and so also you you had mentioned uh earlier uh, that the basic eight your 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 first novel that it was it was sort of heartening because you said it was well okay that's not the right way to put it heartening it's because it was rejected 37 times that's so that heartening. wasn't heartening at the no, time no. no but for others that are sending out yeah so that was, uh, when did you have that uh, completed, the basic eight in your... When did I have it completed? Let's see, probably around 95. Um, and then I, I managed quite quickly to find a literary agent, which was um, a blessing. Um, but then she, uh, she she was the one who forwarded me the 37 letters of rejection um, over oh. the the... the 
three years that followed. Um, was it your first it was, novel? The like... novel was purchased in 1998 and published in 1999. Okay. Was it, um, not to get nitpicky about the dates, Daniel, but was there like other novels that you had that have been like they're put into drawers or is this was sort of yeah, the I'd one that you Yeah, I'd written a novel previous to into. The Basic Eight that is still in a drawer. It's really in a, in a um, plastic bin. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and then I wrote, uh, I started a novel, I started two novels while waiting for The Basic Eight to, to sell. The first one w- eventually became Watch Your Mouth, and the other novel was this novel that was uh, to be called A Series of Unfortunate Events, which was a kind of false start of what turned out to be 13 books. Um, we'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers, and today, Daniel Handler. afternoon if you're just tuning in today on living writers daniel handler and uh, and that that little number was from the gothic archies daniel a few words <laughs> um, I, I, I believe that uh, The World is a Very Scary Place is my favorite song on the Gothic Archie's uh, record uh, The Tragic Treasury um, uh, which is a collection of songs um, uh, each one written about a volume in a series of unfortunate events uh, written uh, by Mr. Stephen Merritt best known for as leading the magnetic fields but he leads a number of bands the sixths the sixths it's <laughs> so hard to say. well that's why <laughs> yes. he named uh the sixths because um it was the hardest thing he could think of to say on the radio the sixths <laughs> first album is wasps nests and the sixth <laughs> second album is hyacinths and thistles um he Nicely also is in a band called done. uh future bible heroes and then there's the gothic archies who had uh one uh ep a number of years ago called the new despair and then he began writing uh, songs at my request, or kind of at my demand, uh, for each volume of a series of unfortunate events. And when the 13th book was released, we had The Tragic Treasury, which contains 13 songs plus a couple of uh, bonus tracks, as they're called in the business. Ooh. <laughs> um, but that's my, um, that's my favorite one. And, and you, were, you were actually here in town a, a couple of years ago when The End came out. That's right. And, and Stephen Merritt was... was on tour here with you as well. It was, yeah, it was sort of a Gothic Archie's tour. Um, 
I play a, a, a couple of instruments on a couple of songs. Um, on 69 on, Love Songs, too, Oh, on 69 right? Love Songs. The accordion is you? I, the, I am the accordionist. I'm, I'm pretty much the adjunct accordionist for the Magnetic Fields. Um, so I've played on a few of their records. And on the, the Tragic Treasury, I played a couple of other uh, things. And um, and so I, so then we ended up touring together. So I sort of became the, the other full-fledged member of the Gothic Archies. Um, when we toured, it was uh, myself on accordion and um, uh, Mr. Merritt on uh, ukulele and then uh, Lemony Snicket on percussion, but he never showed up. So we had all these <laughs> percussion instruments set up and mic'd, but um, he, never, he never came. <laughs> yeah, what about that? <laughs> um, no, he, he never uh, shows up to any uh, readings. It's, it's a wonder that people still come to them. It's, I'm always there in his place. Do you feel like a burden of that? Like sort of having to be the representative and it's Do like, I feel a burden? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> Mr. Snicken and I have worked out an arrangement that is <laughs> that's mutually beneficial. So no, I don't feel overly burdened <laughs> by that. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm a relatively unburdened person. That's right. And always accept a breath mint. Uh, never refuse a breath mint oh, never. is how is how I like to put it. Um, but it just happened uh, last night. I won't name any names here in the Ann Arbor community. But uh, I was uh, uh, um, in a social situation, and I took uh, a tin of breath mints out of my bag and said, who wants a breath mint? And, of course, the person who I wanted most to accept a breath mint said, no, I'm fine. <laughs> Oh, and you I are so not. Say, you, you never refuse a breath mint. You never, if you have a breath mint in your mouth, you don't refuse a breath mint because you never know when you're being offered a breath mint whether it's just kind of a polite sharing or whether it's a way of saying you smell badly and you would smell better. I, would, I wish you smelled of peppermint. Exactly. And it's issuing forth. Um, well, well. Uh, yesterday you were you were also talking a lot about like the the, the birth of Lemony Snicket. Um, uh, well, not the actual literal right. birth, but um, when you were talking on the, uh, I guess calling up, you were doing research, and it just the name came to you, and you honestly had, and you just said it to on the phone. To, to uh, you were signing up for some right wing. Well, literature. yeah, I was calling um. Um, conservative <laughs> organizations uh, in order to get their. Uh, their materials sent to me so I could mock them in the basic eight, which I was writing at the time on stolen paper um, <laughs> from the city college of San Francisco. And uh, I didn't want to be permanently on the mailing list of such organizations. Um, and so a woman on the phone asked me, so what's your name, sir, so we can send you these materials? And I just opened my mouth and said, Lemony Snicket. Is and, that, isn't that amazing? Because that just, like, popped out. It could, lemony. Yes. And, and I didn't even, it didn't even sound like two words when it came out of it's my mouth. Just, you know, I, I just thought, That's your first... I just, it was some short circuit in the brain. Um, you know, because John Smith, for instance, would have been a perfectly acceptable thing to say. And... Um, and she said, is that spelled how it sounds? And I said, yes. And uh, please read that back to me because I had no idea how it sounded like it was spelled. Um, and then it became this joke. And this was long before I thought I would write anything for children, let alone write anything under a different name. Um, and it became a joke uh, uh, between my friends and I who, uh, uh, between my friends and me, uh, 
and uh, one birthday they chipped in and went to Kinko's and made business cards that said Lemony Snicket. And as my job, it said rhetorical analysis. Um, <laughs> and then for a while, and so I would go to bars sometimes and say like, hello, I'm Lemony Snicket. I'm in rhetorical analysis. Like, if you ever need me, give me a call. Um, and uh, we had a cocktail called the Lemony Snicket. And oh, what's that made of? What are the parts? Of- well, it was... Born, you know, this again was in my youth, straight out of college, and no one had any money. Uh, but a friend of ours had a lemon tree in her backyard that was uh, b- produced unspeakable amounts of lemons. Just you couldn't, and you, the, you, there's nothing really you can do with a whole lot of lemons. You know, she would say, Oh, I'm gonna make a lemon cake. I mean, it turns out with a lemon cake, you need like a, a juice and a half. And, um, you know, we needed something where you could use 80 lemons, and so we pulped them and juiced them, and then we, um, I, the the first round, the first time we made lemony tickets, it was white rum. It was, for some reason, a bottle of white rum that was lying around, and we had that and a little bit of uh, soda. But it, but it kind of became whatever you could do with Amanda Wiley's lemons <laughs> and liquor was a lemony snicket. That's good. So it constantly sort of changing too. And well, yeah. which is the history. Yeah. I like cocktails a lot, and the history of cocktails is always about that. That um, you know that, that there, there's all sorts of kind of uh, recipe. You know, like anything else, like any other kind of cooking. There's cake, but there's n- none of the cake. N- there's no real cake. They're all different kinds of cake, and um, martinis and old fashions and Manhattans. They all used to be about how it was flavored because the liquor during prohibition it was kind of whatever liquor you could get. Um, so you would call it whatever cocktail you could you could drum up, really. It's, it's yeah. So cocktails have sort of a, a, a valued place in the in the the history of uh, writers in general and you. <laughs> you... <laughs> writers in general and me. That's right. Because <laughs> whether you're a writer in general or me, or a general, you might enjoy cocktails. Because <laughs> over sidecars, that's when you you sort of first started talking about uh, Lemony Snicket to one of your your pals who you were actually. Um, well, she wasn't really a pal. She, oh, was, oh. Uh, she was an editor at a publishing house. But um, you were just kind then and took her out when she lost her job. Um, I did. Uh, um, yeah, sorry. There was a <laughs> sudden, no- a sudden strange, ambient noise in the studio, but we're ignoring it. Um, it. This was still before The Basic Gate uh, had been published. And um, in desperation, my literary agent had sent it to a couple of editors who edited, uh, edited novels for young adults because the novel is set in a high school. And it's not really a young adult novel. And particularly then, the climate has changed for that uh, now. But back then, it definitely wasn't for teenagers. You couldn't publish books for teenagers that had sex and drugs and uh, murder. Um, only plucky characters, as yes. you said. Well, only kind of, um, <laughs> yeah, a very cheerful high school novels were being published. And uh, so this editor read it, and she said, well, I can't publish it, but I do think you ought to write something uh, for children. And then she was laid off, and then I took her out for drinks, and then she owed me drinks, and she said, um, but I still think you ought to write something uh, for children. And I had been working on this novel, a series of unfortunate events, that I had then abandoned because I it it wasn't making any sense to me. And it suddenly became clear that if the protagonists were children, the story was much more interesting and much more workable. But I still thought it was a dreadful idea. I just thought, you, I, I cannot possibly 
tell anyone in a professional setting, I would like to write 13 books about terrible things happening to children over and over again, and it would be called A Series of Unfortunate Events. But, I mean, that's, that just seemed obscene. And so um, she owed me some drinks, and, and she wanted me to write for children. And so I said, look, let's meet in a bar. I'm not going to write a letter saying what kind of books I'm going to write. I'm not going to write a sample. I'm not going to do all of the professional things you're supposed to do if you're going to pitch a book, which already seemed, as a, as a, as a novelist, seemed absurd for me because you don't really, you, you never pitch a novel, um, you, you particularly have, when you're in a beginning. You, you know, have you a don't novel. Go to, yeah, you write it and then you try to sell it. And so the idea that I didn't even have a novel to sell, in fact, I had a novel that I'd already abandoned, even I knew was worthless, um, and uh, so we met in a bar, and uh, I got there early and had you know one round of drinks, um, so that uh, I would for courage. And then I told her this idea that I had, and she loved it. And I was really embarrassed because I thought it meant that she was a lightweight, and that she was going <laughs> to call me the next morning and say, "I don't know what I was thinking. I'm really sorry." And that, you know, I, I, how can I tell this broke, desperate writer that I thought it was a great idea and I was definitely going to buy the book and then in the cold light of day that I wouldn't. That was my fear. And then um, she uh, she called me the next morning and said, uh, I'm uh, I'm stone cold sober and I still like the idea. And um, and uh, let's let's do these books. And so we did. And the rest. Ta -ta -ta -ta. <laughs> As they say. And then. <laughs> And then you had, of course, the the the. It's been made into a movie. The the first the uh, first three volumes. Yes. And and um, and, and you were in on that for a while, but then stepped out of that. Was that an unfortunate series of events during that time, or was it just better? Um, to... Well, it took five years to make the movie, so it was everything. It there were parts of it that were unbelievably pleasurable, and parts of it that were really terrible, and. Um, really difficult and I wrote eight well practically nine drafts of uh, of a screenplay and then I said to them I just don't think I can do another draft and they said that's so funny we don't think you can do another draft either goodbye so I was um, fired uh, and from your own from well uh, uh, um, but I guess it's not your own in that way anymore maybe that a was film becoming is never owned by the, by the writer yeah. Yeah. and the whole idea was that it was adapted for film so I didn't actually I, I don't have that kind of uh, stick in the mud attitude that that a, that a film ought to be exactly like the book I think you have an author's unfettered vision in the book and a film is just a version of it so I um, I don't understand that. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always curious if people like the film or they don't like the film, and I'm always curious when I see other films from books how I like them and how they've changed it. But I never think I, I, I never think to myself that's outrageous how they changed it. <laughs> it shouldn't have been changed because you could go and read the book. That's the nice thing about literature. Yeah, it's, and it's not just the in theaters don't... for a couple of weeks. You can actually pick up a book anytime. And it's not erased off the planet. Because yeah, yes. And so, Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> Not so far. <laughs> Knocking on my head now. Um, so uh, you also just uh, actually did a pick of your own for um, uh, the 
children's, you, you know, talking about what books should children read. And um, and there's an Italian writer, and there's bears invading Sicily. Uh, yes. Do you know Buzzati's uh, children's book, The Bear's Famous Invasion of Sicily, which was my uh, favorite book when I was a child? And um, and and then a couple of years ago, I abused my power as a as a children's author uh, within HarperCollins and kind of bullied them into putting this book back into print. Um, and, Which um, makes sense because you said it was also just strangely re-released over in Italy around the same time. Well, Dino Buzzati so, is a fairly well-known writer in Italy, but of other things, uh, right? Uh, right, as a, uh, um, kind of a political novelist is my impression of his profile, and. Um, so it's almost as if there was one children's book by by Joan Didion or something, and, and so it's not that unusual that he that book is uh, more easily found in Italy. But I was <laughs> I really wanted it <laughs> to be easily found in America, um, and I think it's had limited commercial success uh, this American re-release of it. But uh, I'm proud of it anyway. And and that and that was when you were giving gifts out. Um like that year you for all the the people you knew was that the gift that you were <laughs> I gave it to a, to a lot of people um and I I I recommend it at every opportunity whenever I'm here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor I try to encourage our viewers <laughs> <laughs> to go out and purchase a copy of Dino Buzzati's The Bear's Famous Invasion of Sicily in stores now. <laughs> and also The Egypt Game. <laughs> well, The Egypt Game is kind of a classic of children's literature. I don't think I The Egypt Game... I have to read that, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I would like well, to read that. It's a wonderful book, and um, and that's always been available. And much as I love Zilpha Keatley Snyder, The Egypt Game doesn't need too much publicity. It needs no help from me. Yes. Um, only only a glass of root beer. You're listening to Living Writers uh, with Daniel Handler. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, Daniel Handler in the chair. Yes. <laughs> Here I am in the chair. Ahoy, matey. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this for real that your current project is um, uh, to do with pirates? or is that... I am. I'm writing a novel about pirates. Can we do the rest of this in sort of some sort of pirate brogue? 
No. <laughs> do you mind if I do? <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very terrible at any kind of accents or uh, jargon. Um, I, um, I, uh, so I would be, I, I would make a miserable pirate, at least linguistically. Actually, across the board, I would be a miserable pirate. I'm not particularly brave. I'm really not violent. I don't. Um, uh, avarice doesn't flow through my veins with the proper fury required of a pirate. Um, I know nothing about steering ships. I'm not strong. Hoist I don't the main respond sail. well to traditional leadership. <laughs> so why pirates? Why now? Uh... Um, I, I just, um, well, it's a novel I'm working on, so it's hard to talk about it yes. with any um, real knowledge uh, from myself and certainly not from anyone else. But, um, but I just thought, I, it's, it's, I, I think pirates are interesting. Um, the idea first came from the novel when I read that pirates used to have, uh, some pirates had uh, compatriots on land who yes. would sell false maps to sailors who would believe they were going around a cape or something, but really they were heading into a cove uh, where the pirates could get them. And yes. I found it fascinating, a false map. That's, I ne it, that had never occurred to me, and I found that idea very beautiful. Because books are supposed to be true, maps are supposed to be true, right? Like these things that until you realize things aren't always um, Well, also true. now um, the world is so thoroughly mapped, you couldn't really have that problem. You know, you couldn't wander the streets of Ann Arbor and say, I really want to get to Chicago. And someone could say, oh, it's just like six blocks away. Here's a map. You know, no, that, that wouldn't be a good, no one would <laughs> fall for that. There are plenty of maps and everyone knows that sh how far Chicago is. And there's, um, uh, there's such so much more knowledge of the world and try to imagine uh, negotiating a space where you were really at the mercy of some piece of paper. Right, right. Um, or, or for example, like lights off a shore because in Cornwall in England, they also so they, it was called wrecking. Like they purposely um, wreck people on the land yes. would wreck, and then you oh know, yeah, absolutely, all sorts of of, of tricks a, like that, a treachery. Um. <laughs> yes. Well, pirates. So that's so that's something to look forward to. Yes, I'm looking um, forward to continuing to work on the book and stretching. Should we say a quick? Would you like to say a word about stretching? Um, like I just health. read an article on the importance of stretching and that uh, orchestra conductors tend to live longer, uh, on average, than normal people. And one theory is that their arms are over their heads with more regularity uh, than most of us. And so, under the usual 72-hour spell of an article that one finds compelling, I'm stretching all the time now. Soon that will stop. <laughs> <laughs> but, I used to have fresh juice every morning. You know, you read something and then you try it for a while and then you just give up. Um, but not on writing. <laughs> nice no. segue there, right? No, Never well, I give don't up read on writing. on writing very much. I'm actually reading right now a book by uh, Italo Calvino. I think that's how one pronounces yeah, it. Uh, called Six Memos for the New Millennium, which is on writing, but uh, and that, which I found lovely. And then... Um, and then your university's own uh, Nicholas Del Banco has a wonderful book on writing uh, called *The Lost Suitcase*. Um, but there's, a, but for the most part, I find books on writing to be kind of tedious and strange. And, so, and you, you didn't go to an MFA program, did you? I didn't. No. And, um, well, you found other forms of funding and what sort of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sorry to make Jobs it. Jobs like... <laughs> is the word you might be looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just. Uh, I, I guess I that's why for the, like, for the years following my undergraduate education, I found various positions that allowed me time to write. Um, I uh, I had a, a very small grant um, from the university, and I uh, and I wormed my way into a year of free housing and stayed on the campus of Wesleyan University for one more year. Uh, I then had this job with the computer science department of the City College of San Francisco, which was paid as a city employee, and it was a half-time job. So the money was good enough right. that I could pay my rent and write half-time. And then I found this radio uh, gig, which meant that there was a lot of writing. It was a monthly. We produced shows monthly, and so you would do a lot of writing for a few days, and then you would have a lot of time off. And that was also perfect. And I always thought if I couldn't find a position, I would... Uh, perhaps enroll in an MFA program that would allow me the time. But that that was my own right, obsession. No, yeah, I knew that I was slowly getting better as a writer and that I was going to throw away a lot. And I had uh, mentors who I kept in touch with and other people who read my work. Uh, but it was the it was the time to write that felt most dear to me. So um, so I'm I'm not um, I'm not one of those people who doesn't have an MFA and gets all snooty about about oh I did it the old fashioned way or something. I just didn't it it didn't I didn't need it. Uh, in terms of the time. So, um, well, that's good to hear. I like you, Daniel Handler. Oh, well, thanks. You seem nice yourself. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's here we are at the surface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about adverbs. Sure. Um, national bestseller adverbs um, by Daniel Handler. <laughs> the one book I neglected to mention in uh, your yes, introduction. My most recent novel, Adverbs. <laughs> and it was, and it was, I always uh, like national bestseller because I feel it's the polite way of saying this was not on the New York Times bestseller list. No, not, I, I, not to, I don't mean to mock the, <laughs> the performance of my novel or something, but I always feel that is kind of a euphemism. <laughs> It's <laughs> um, and, and so out. It was out in hard hardcover in two thousand six, and uh, or wait, or just or released in paperback. Well, I hold the paperback yes, in my. Yes, it is in paperback hand. now. Um, now, so so this is the the, uh, the writing project, and you're actually touring now. I looked on your site with um, the the composer's dead, and this is something that you created with Nathaniel Stuckey, and that's. Uh, right. That is a, a piece um, uh, for narrator and orchestra, uh, not unlike Peter and the Wolf, uh, mm. that introduces the orchestra to people uh, who might not be familiar with it. Um, and the uh, San Francisco Symphony commissioned the piece uh, about a year and a half ago, and so we debuted it there. And then it's been performed all over the place. It's, it was the most uh, performed uh, piece of music by a living composer uh uh, orchestral kind of composer last year it was performed oh, all over the place. Oh, that's a wonderful uh, title so, then for it too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's a national bestseller, <laughs> uh, and and so I've performed it. Uh, I've been the narrator at a number of performances, and so I just uh, went and did that up in the town of Kitchener Waterloo, outside of Toronto. Um, and oh, a hotbed for symphonies, right? Uh, well, they ha actually have a very fine symphony. Uh, it's Canada. Public funding for the arts is yes. such that. They have a very fine symphony that actually goes to other surrounding communities and performs, and it um, brings classical music to people in ways that are uh, often lacking in yes. this great nation of ours. Um, and, and when you say it was commissioned... But I'm sure now that I've complained about it on the radio, everything will change. That's right. <laughs> 
Ah, the power. That's right. John McCain is listening right now saying, oh, I just had a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) That handler's right. (laughs) I'm sure you hear that many times a day. (laughs) (laughs) From John McCain. He will not leave me alone, that guy. (laughs) I love that Calvino book, dude. Man, go back to... Never mind. <laughs> well, he's on a bus tour John right McCain now. is not my candidate of choice, I don't mind admitting. Well, yeah, you formed um, like the, the political action committee, right, for the liberal, uh, the uh, well, liberal I, uh, candidates? Uh, it, is that true? Mr. Stephen Elliott, who formed uh, LitPAC, um, which is a, a public action committee that raises money for progressive candidates uh, nationwide. I'm an enthusiastic participant, um, but it is Stephen Elliott, uh, a wonderful writer and uh, an activist who formed that organization. So do you, so you do you um you're 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 actually you're you're doing something aren't I you? I try to put my money where my mouth is. Yes. <laughs> um, and and when you say that the the latest that the composer's dead was commissioned in San Francisco, so was this an idea that they came up with because you they that that the town saw that you had incorporated like music into, for example, a series uh, of unfortunate No, events, it's or? just that um, Nathaniel uh, Stuckey is a composer I knew personally and I uh, admired his work and we wanted to uh, work together and then one day uh, I was asked to be the narrator for a performance of Peter and the Wolf and Peter and the Wolf is actually a beautiful piece of music but the story and the narration is really annoying I find and also it's just performed to death and orchestras are tired of it and parents are tired of taking their children to it and so I said hey Stuckey we could do something like this and then we asked the San Francisco Symphony and they said oh why not oh I'm eager to see it actually Uh, well it it will be in picture book with CD in the back form uh, next year from HarperCollins with illustrations by uh, Carson Ellis who's a wonderful illustrator uh, most known for uh, uh, doing the album covers for the Decemberists, um, uh, uh, whose leader, Colin Malloy, is uh, Ms. Ellis's husband or uh, fiance. They're about to get married. So I could hear it. So you could I hear could, it. So I could hear it. That would be yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's to stop me. No, it's well, not not, a... <laughs> it's hard to hear now unless you're in, in a, a, a symphony hall, but, um, uh, but it, it will be... Uh, the audio version will be we'll in be the back out. of this beautiful we'll be, picture book that Zealous is drawing as we speak. I hope. Hooray! Yes. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> she so, might be having coffee now, but she's working on it in general. You got to give her time. Very moment, what she's doing. Everyone has their own rhythm. That's right. I'm not giving her a hard time at all. Wait, she's working very hard. She's almost done. What's your work rhythm like then, Daniel? With your, is it? Do you? It seems like you might have multiple projects that you're, you've, you've got going. So it's not something where you get on a track and then uh, run it through to the end obsessively. Or, or um, how is it for you? I. It is kind of more like that. I just uh, I work fairly quickly, and I work uh, and I work pretty long hours. Um, that's just something that I'm lucky enough to be able to do. So, on an average day, I write from about nine to about three, which is a lot. I mean, the the biggest luck is that I just I have time to do that. I don't um, have any other job but writing. Um, so I um, I'm not correcting papers or uh, mopping floors or um, selling electric pianos or any number of occupations that one might have. Um, so, uh, so 
I, I was always in quest of a position that found me enough time to write, and uh, to my astonishment, the position that has uh, allowed me enough time to write has been novelist. Who, who would have thought? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm very lucky that way. And... And so, and when you're, and, and it also you're lucky, but, and plucky, <laughs> just kidding. And I know you don't like them. <laughs> I'm all sorts of words that rhyme with ucky. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but it also seems like in a way, if you're saying uh, on average, you write from nine to three, you also seem to maybe guard that time. Like it's something that is a, a discipline for you. It's not I try as to stay off you... the phone. I'll say that. Um, but I really like writing. And so I'm not, um, easily distracted by cable television or anything um i'm um yeah i i i like to write so and do you have um because you have a you have a family uh um I do. as well i have and, a wife and son and and so do you have a studio that's sort of out outside the house or is it just so you're uh, fine no my working? wife does actually she is an illustrator and she has a studio outside the house but i have a little office uh in my in the house and um i take my kid to school in the morning uh, which kind of passes for a commute. You know, I, I, I leave my house and then I come back as if I'm arriving at a workplace, even though it's the same place I left. Um, and I uh, make a pot of tea and I'm ready to go. That sounds And then does it go with a school day then? You go and, um, and when you go to collect him, then it's, then you're finished uh, writing? No, we or? have, um, we have childcare when it's school okay. over, so we're lucky that are there too. Yeah, well, not to, um, not to, <laughs> not like I'm trying to find out about exactly how you live your life every minute. No, that's fine. <laughs> or the movements about... <laughs> of my child, that would be, <laughs> yeah, exactly. what route do they take home, exactly? <laughs> is he afraid of strangers, or is there some delicious food that could, say, lure him somewhere? <laughs> Um, when um <laughs> have you already read the stories uh to to him uh, or no or are you making um, new stories that are more specific just to Otto or what um uh, no my wife illustrates picture books and he definitely uh he likes the two picture books that she has uh published um He's, um, what are they called? I mean, he's young, he's four, so he's not, uh, and although I've heard of children as young as four, uh, having the books, uh, having the Snicket books read to them, um, my son is, n has nowhere near the, the, um, the fortitude and bravery for such dreadful stories. He's, um, he's, uh, extremely mild mannered. So, um, we read, so he likes, I mean, there's a bunch of books he likes that we read to him. Uh, right now he's learning how to swim in real life. So he likes books about, uh, people or creatures usually who are learning how to swim. Um, so, Ooh. uh, yeah, I mean, he loves, uh, books to sometimes to a kind of heartbreaking extent. We taught him early on that if he ever, if he hurts himself or he's upset about something that let's read a book and that will make you feel better. And so sometimes now he, he just recently he banged his head on something and then while crying did this kind of sad stumble to the, bookshelf, the bookshelf and oh. grabbed a book and only then would be embraced by us. And, it, <laughs> and we thought, okay, maybe we've pushed this literacy thing a little too far. <laughs> we, we pictured him, you know, as an adult, like call 911 and then get a book because you'll be at the way room probably so you, you'll want that what does one read when one's having a heart attack you know um, at least you're stressing so, the dial 911 yeah. first not, <laughs> i mean i guess it's better than bookshelf. grabbing a game boy but still <laughs> grabbing nothing before you <laughs> accept the embrace of others when you've <laughs> been hurt might be okay um, i think that's just your 
plug for um, young people reading at an early age. Teach your children young. That's right. <laughs> You're listening to Living Writers uh, today, Daniel Handler. Um, and thanks to Alex Belhodge for being an, a wonderful engineer. We'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, Living Writers. Today, Daniel Handler. Do you want to say it too, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> I'm more than happy to admit I'm a living writer. Not dead yet. <laughs> Fortunately. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about adverbs. Um, Certainly. Since, and, and it's interesting because it's been, and we, we, don't, we don't have too much time left, which is, um, as, as to use one of your words now that I'll always associate with you, dreadful, um, but uh, adverbs and novel, which is interesting because it, it, is, it, it appears like more of uh, short stories uh, that have then have connections. So was this your idea for it to be billed as a novel or what, what did you, or you just, uh, you just write yes. it, right? You're not like, <laughs> you just do that. I just write it. Um, no, I, I, to me, it, it, it uh, is most certainly a novel, although its structure is, is fragmentary and there are certain, and, and each chapter of the novel has its own kind of arc. So I'm, it's not as if I'm puzzled by accusations that it's a short story collection, but to me, it, I don't mean um, to be accusatory. Oh, no. I wasn't meaning that. <laughs> I can defend myself in court, my good woman. Uh, it, but it, uh, it, 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 is, it is a book about love, and it is a book about a bunch of people in love, and a bunch of people who imagine themselves in love in all different ways, and and uh, the different ways that love can go. And so to me, that was uh, all one novel. Um, I was uh, inspired very much by the Book of Laughter and Forgetting, which has a similar yeah. uh, structure that it is. Um, it's kind of a theme and variations. Uh, and, uh, and then I... And so... Uh, I said to the publishing house, I think it's a novel, and that they were game for that. I mean, um, uh, I think if only on a on a capitalist level, um, uh, novels tend to sell better than short stories. So um, they, if so, they were happy to call it a novel. They would have been happy to call it a collection of short stories too. But but um, in, in your as you first, but wrote... for me, it's a novel. For other people, I I guess it's short stories. But that's fine too. No 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 no, it's a novel. I don't. I... Other people, it's a doorstop. You know, it works <laughs> on a number of different levels. Which <laughs> <No. laughs> when you first uh, wrote had this project, Daniel, did you have the um, which which story is it? The one that works as an essay where you actually the voice comes in and there's a moment where it sounds like you're um 
You're talking about well, a, like a what? A portion of a novel called Truly, in which yes. I try to explain uh, how the rest of the structure, how the rest of the novel is working, which is again I stole completely from Milan uh, Kundera in the Book of Laughter and Forgetting. Um, I, uh, I normally when I write a novel, I uh, kind of get all my all my ducks in a line and do a lot of outlining and a lot of research and the adverbs was uh, written in stolen moments between volumes of a series of unfortunate events and I didn't really know what I was doing for a long time it felt like different drafts of the same short story and um, it, at times it even felt like it was kind of some kind of non-fiction uh, philosophical uh, type work there's many wonderful moments I'm glad you said that Daniel because I wrote here on notes like grand statements with repercussions like yes. go throughout the book well, that's almost what I thought it was I was reminded of um, very cheesy uh, self-help or financial help uh, books you know where someone says uh, Bob and Alice are having trouble in their marriage or you know uh, Graham is a man who earns $50,000 a year and how can he save for his retirement? Then in a way, I thought I was saying, uh, love is like this, and let's look at this example like this. And so I thought even for a while that it was that kind of nonfiction book. Uh, but I gradually realized that it, it felt like a novel um, uh, unified uh, more by theme than by some um, beginning, middle, and end, uh, the way my other novels and, and most other novels are, uh, are structured. And so it, it was fun to, to try that. And uh, also unified by the, the images that you have throughout. Like, for example, um, the, the magpie, where in one story it could be it's, um, there, it's an, an exercise that children have to, to learn about, like the magpie, but then it, the magpie and it's different, it's attractive and appealing, and then there's these echoes of that throughout the book. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of magpies in the book, uh, a lot of cocktails, a lot of taxis. Um, and all of those are um, are kind of characters in the book and also kind of uh, philosophical, rhetorical symbols that a magpie is something that finds shiny objects that it's attracted to, which is kind of like love. And a, yes. and a cocktail is uh, mysterious and... Uh, intoxicating. And, <laughs> intoxicating. and then um, the taxi cab, which... Uh, which begins and ends the novel, uh, their journeys in a taxi, I always think is an interesting metaphor for relationships because it's kind of about the journey and it's kind of about the destination and kind of one person's driving the car, but kind of the other person's in charge of where you're going. And I love taxi cabs uh, and, and they're Even so if they're full dirty. of possibility yeah, to, me, to me. Yeah. yeah, better than the bus too, the character says. So Actually, the taxi cab I took to uh, here to the campus at Ann Arbor from uh, Detroit was one of the cleanest taxi cabs I'd ever been in. It looked like a like a like a drawing of a taxi cab. It was so clean. I couldn't figure out too when I got in. I was suspicious of it in some way and I couldn't figure out why. And then I suddenly realized there's not a trace of dirt in, at the end of winter. Right, right. In a taxi cab <laughs> from Detroit, not a city known for excessive cleanliness, um, to put it mildly. Uh, so, um, so thank you, taxi driver. <laughs> if you're listening out there to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, thank you, taxi driver with the clean cab. Um, and those with the filthy cabs, I love you too. <laughs> um. 
Well, and I wondered if that's a way of of working because not only sorry to go back to this the the images and and you because you use entire phrases where you'll but you'll put them in places that uh, are unexpected or in characters' mouths that um, it's so that they have a different meaning but hearkening back to earlier parts and and I noticed in your your talk yesterday you you did that too where you had these echoes where you kept bringing back either the woman that fell down the stairs and the or the you know um, well it's sorry. yeah it's, it's definitely like a, a hallmark of, of uh, you, my work in a way right. that um, that sentences or phrases or images um, come back twice it's all over the Snicket books that um, when someone says it takes a village to raise a child the Baudelaire's end up uh, in a village in which everyone is in charge of them they're they're being raised collectively by all of these bossy adults um, and uh, and that, that's just something I always do when I was I started in college um, I read a lot of poetry, uh, as we all did, I'm sure, but um, I really thought I was going to become a poet, and I was most attracted to the Sestina, which is this poem uh, uh, form where you have uh, you choose six words that um, end lines, and they end lines in all these different configurations in each stanza, and I just and love then they that. become the final lines, and, and then they, the, yeah, they're, and then they're all jammed together yes. in this kind of uh, finale at the end, and uh, you have to choose your words very carefully, and they often have to be words that ca- that mean With multiple things uh, that can mean different things. Um, you know, you can choose blue to mean sad and refer to a color, um, and. Uh, and I loved that kind of uh, that slipperiness of language, and certainly it's all over adverbs because part of the point of love is that uh, people talk of little else, and yet there's no real reliable explanation for it at all. So. Yes, yes, and the layering involved and the the miss mistakes and missteps and good things. <laughs> but I, it's it's yes, it, they're good parts of love too, but <laughs> no one ever talks about those. It's. It's uh, well, yeah, too bad we don't have more time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all hear the stories of your love life when the microphone is off. <laughs> <laughs> Promises. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm, one, I'm glad that you said that, Daniel, because I did, I did feel like Adverbs was uh, working on a, poet, a poetic level, which is... Um, yeah, the, as the whole, as the the idea and the structuring. So that was, what a nice finish. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a nice time. Thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, nice. I actually hate that word, nice. How do you feel about the word nice? What do you... Um, I have no strong feelings about it. Lately, I've been in, wor- uh, uh, in love with the word wrong, because if you put it in front of almost uh, any noun, it becomes fascinating. You know, if you, if you say... Uh, wrong giraffe? He took a walk down the wrong street. Suddenly, that's that's fragrant with with story. <laughs> um, it could mean that he's lost, or it could mean that he's about to die, or it could mean that something's wrong with the street, or something like that. Uh, so, uh, but nice, I haven't really explored yet. But there's time. There's time. Well, thank you, Daniel Handler. Thank you for having me. And uh, come back anytime. <laughs> well, I'll call ne- first. Next time, the accordion. <laughs> <laughs> next time, the accordion. I think that's what we say at the end of a Seder. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks again to Alex Bellhodge for engineering. Um, thanks for listening and streaming uh, Chicago, Seattle, Florida. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. You've been listening to Living Writers. Until next time.